0: Uh, We look forward to what God's going to do here this morning. Uh, We are in the middle of a series called Regeneration, and Regeneration is a recovery ministry that takes place here every single Monday night. But it's not just a ministry, but it's actually something that every single Christian is involved in, and it's a thing called recovery. And I know that we're naturally uh, oftentimes assuming that other people are the ones that need recovery. We oftentimes think, man, I really wish that someone else was here to heal hear this message or to be a part of this series. And uh, you can think of many uh, people, right? I mean, for some of you husbands, you're in here, you're like, I wish my wife was here. Uh, for some of you wives in here, you've been praying that your husband would be coming. You know, uh, you've been thinking about your cousin. You've been thinking about your aunt. You've been thinking about your brother. You've been thinking about everyone else. But the thing is, is this, and. This is what I want everyone to understand is that recovery is something that every single Christian goes through. And the reason why it's a process of walking out of sin and darkness into a, a process of justification, seeing God reveal himself, living your life just as if you've never sinned. And then moving you from justification to sanctification as you grow in him. And as you grow up in Christ, then there's many things that are a natural part of our life that we have to deal with. Many things from our past and then many steps that we have to take for our future. Uh, Nate Graybill, the guy that you just saw on the screen. is a very good friend of Stone Point and Mark and I. Uh, He is the pastor of Regeneration at Watermark. Uh, They are the ones who actually wrote the curriculum. And we are now one of about 20 churches all across the world that are actually uh, doing Regeneration in a pilot program. They accepted us into that. And we are now about a year and a half into our commitment with them. And we have an awesome relationship with them. And so um, that that was Nate, but it was his story. Even before they had recovery, he was in recovery. Did you notice that? Even before we had a program, even before we had a place to go, we had recovery to do, and he said, "What did we do?" He said, "We searched the scriptures. We dive in this problem with community. We got in with other people, and we got neck deep in realizing what it was that it really was that we were struggling with." And he said, "And there were many things that were the cough medicine. There were many things that I was covering my life up with." And for his wife, she had some challenges, but for him, he said pornography was actually a cover up for my people pleasing and pride. Why? Because I could. Get away, retreat, and be the king of my own world. But that's what sin does. Sin so easily entangles us. It deceives us. It lures us in. And that's the point of recovery. Um, Matter of fact, we were here Thursday night, and I I think many of you probably on this campus are aware that my dad had just a horrific accident in September. And uh, he's actually sitting um, with us today. <clears throat> but one of the things that we were talking about the other night at prayer here on our campus Thursday night, as he looked around, he said, many people would think that I was normal. He said, if you were to approach me, if you were to walk, he said, if I set my cane to the side, he said, you would believe that I was just fine. He said, but it's not until you get up close that you realize that I can't see you with one of my eyes, that it's I only got one eye to see you, and he says, "Not until you start talking to me and I just nod my head and smile, that you realize I can't hear you, that I, I that I can't understand what it is that you're communicating." And he says, "It's not until you watch me walk that you realize that my balance is off." But he said, "If you just stare at me, you just look at me, you assume that he's just a, a normal guy, and so people rush in front of him at Walmart. They don't, you know, they don't have any." Uh, attention to him because they believe he's just normal, right? And that's really then what brought this thing up that he said. He says, we just prayed for regeneration, which was one of the things we prayed for on Thursday night. He said, how easy is it for all of us in our life to assume that we're all okay? And he said, I've done that all my life and God has given me but one eye, but he's given me eyes to see and he's giving me ears to hear. And he said, and this is what he said, If there are people who are hurting and it's deep below the surface where you and I can't see, but God knows it's there. And as people, we have to be searching for their help. And I was like, oh. And that really is what recovery is. Recovery is realizing our need for God really in regeneration and even in your own recovery, the very first step to that is admitting. That's the first step, is admitting that you and I are powerless over our lives, that our lives are full of broken and sinful patterns and we cannot, what? We cannot break the strongholds, the chains ourselves. And so we admit that we're sinners, right? That is truly Romans three twenty three. for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And I think all of us in here would say, I know that in my life, I have fallen short of the glory of God. No matter where it is that you sit, no matter how pretty of a picture you want to paint of your life, your marriage, your job, your home, we're all sinners. We all fall short of the glory of God. And there's got to be a point in our recovery process that we admit that, throw up our hands, and then what? Believe in a God that can fully restore us. That's where recovery begins is believing a God that can fully restore us. And then as we believe in him, we just what? We trust in him. That's step three. You move from belief to trust, deciding to put your will, your life in God's hands, knowing that in essence, you can't, but he can. And so in all the places that you fall short, God measures up. In all the weaknesses you have, he is strong for you on your behalf. In all the places that you would look, into God's presence, into his face, and you were to see and understand the degree of your sin, you know it's covered by the degree of righteousness placed in your life through Jesus Christ. And so what does that do? Well, it brings you to this point. We discussed it in week two, which was last week that it should cause you to just begin to, to take some inventory of your life. They should begin to examine yourself and, and you can't examine yourself on your own. Matter of fact, there's many of us in this, in this room and you've said many times, I don't know what's wrong with me. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know what steps to take. And what's interesting is, is that in your recovery process, apart from God, you'll never know the deep and hidden things in your life. Why? Because it takes the spirit of God to reveal such things. That's why You see King David, invite God into his story. That's why he says, Lord, create in me a pure heart. Lord, search me. Lord, know me. Lord, know my anxious ways. Lord, know my thoughts. Know when I sit. Know when I rise. Lord, I need you and your presence. And as you invite him in, then he begins to allow you to do an inventory of the things in your life. Because as people... We do. We come up with coping mechanisms. And for many of us, we don't want to go back to our childhood. We don't want to go back to the days of college where we made many mistakes. We don't want to go back to the times like Jennifer spoke about last week in in abortion and painful times. We don't want to go back there. And so what we do is we find coping mechanisms, cover-ups, cough medicine to help us relate And it's not until we invite God into our story are we able to go back and begin allowing him to redeem those difficult things. But if he doesn't redeem them, if he doesn't speak truth into your life, then you'll continually believe deceptive lies from the enemy. Lies that that bring fear in your life, bring isolation, bring pain, and bring a reminder of how far you believe you've fallen. And while you have fallen in your sin, Christ is there to what? Restore you. And so when you accept his restoration, then you can do true inventory. And then that means that it brings you to two things because inventory in your life does reveal how far from God you really are. And what does it do? It brings you to confession and to repentance. It brings you to confess to the people in your life that you need in community. One of the things that I love about Nate's story is he said, Before there was a recovery program, I, what, I dove into the scriptures, I did an inventory of my life, and I, what, confessed and brought in people in my life, my wife and my community and my story. Now, I'll tell you that One of the things that I want to encourage you to understand, and listen to me, you can argue it all day long. You can justify it all day long. You uh, you will never, ever, 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 ever once convince me to believe you in this. Not only will I not believe you, I will not agree with you. You cannot have recovery by yourself. It is absolutely not possible. And you go, well, no, no, I know. I don't need other people. I've got God. No, no, no. Unfortunately, in the Christian life and in our faith, God did not set it up for us to live alone. If he wanted us to live alone with God, just us and God, then why would he ever have allowed us to be created? Moreover, why did Adam need a helpmate? Because he suggests that community is important and community is one of the hardest things for us to embrace. Why? Because it's easy to look into my face and go, you know what? It just is difficult for me. I'm just I'm just shy or I, you know I just you know I just really struggle with that. It just puts me out of my comfort zone. Well, let me ask you this one question. If you could embrace all that God had for you through freedom in Christ by getting out of your comfort zone and involving other people into your community and into your story, would it be worth it? Yes. And unfortunately, there's so many of us that we live in pain and isolation. And yet God says, no, you need community. And I know that it it, it seems difficult. I mean, matter of fact, we even look at this and we go, well, in my repentance and in my confession, like, why do I need to, why do I need to even confess this to another human being? I mean, why do I need to reveal the exact nature of my sins? Like, can't I just tell them that I did some wrong? Like, can't I just tell them that, hey, you know, I missed the mark here? And yes, I guess you can. But the question is, is this, how free do you really want to be? That's the question you have to ask. How free do I really want to be? Because if you want to be totally free, then you say this, God, you know that I've wronged you. God, you know the error of my ways. And I don't mind sharing with other people, not because I'm proud of it, because I'm actually not. but Because I don't ever want the enemy or anyone else to dangle something over my head that Christ has already paid for. And that's the point. Don't give other people a foothold where Christ has already set you free. Don't give someone else the ability to choke hold you or stranglehold you when Christ has already redeemed it. He's already paid for it and he's already set you free. And so that's why we confess and that's what leads us to repentant. A repentant heart is turning and going the other way. And so that's the first six steps towards recovery. Now, here's what's interesting think about your Christian life. Think if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, think about your life. The first six steps all come pretty naturally to us as Christians, it should. Why? Because it's pretty easy for all of us to acknowledge and admit that we're sinners. It's all easy for us to believe in a God who can fully restore us to put our trust in him. It should be natural for us to continually invite God into our story to do an inventory. Inventory should always bring about confession and repentance. If that's not all a natural part of your life, then it does bring fear, isolation, and pain, separation from God and his church, which is community. And so here's what I look at. I think, A response to missing community oftentimes is one of two things. One, it's it's a lack of understanding how God wants to grow you. Or two, it is living in fear and shame and not wanting people to know the real you. But either way, you don't get to all that God has for you. And so as Christians, one of the reasons that we implore you as church people, and particularly as members in our church, to connect with God connect with others, connect in service, connect with the world is because the Christian life is not meant to be done alone. It's just not. It's not meant to be a place where we come in, we sit and we leave. It's not meant to be a place where we just come and sing a few songs, hear a message, and then walk out. It's not meant to be for us at all, really. It's meant to be God manifesting himself through a community of people who are like-minded, all in recovery themselves, all willing to admit their brokenness, their shame, their heartache, all saying, God, we need your peace, we need your wisdom, we need not to lean on our own understanding, but in all our ways acknowledge you that you may make our path straight, and when you get that, then you get a beautiful thing and you begin to see freedom experienced in your life. And so you go, okay, awesome. What's step seven, eight, and nine? Well, here they are. Christ does not call you to all of those things so that you continue to live the way you wanna live. Matter of fact, he calls you to admit, believe. He calls you to trust. He calls you to do inventory, to confess, and to repent. For this one reason, it shows to everyone that you are a follower of Jesus Christ. Understand? And so really step seven is being a follower. If you remember, Jesus said uh, to those who would follow him in uh, Matthew 16, 24, he says, deny yourselves, take up the cross and follow me, Right? Yes, in in foundation seven, this is what it says in terms of the actual scripture that goes along with our recovery. It says, and those who belong to Jesus Christ have crucified the flesh with his passions and desires. And if we live by the spirit, let us also keep in step with the spirit, right? So he goes, one of the things that reveals to other people that you're indeed a believer in full recovery, living a life out in Christ as you walk in the spirit, you are step and step, stride for stride with the Spirit. And then he says, and this is clear, you deny yourself, you take up with the cross, and you follow Jesus. It means that you leave your old patterns of lifestyle. It means that you leave the bondage, and you, what, serve a God, a master, who you are now a bondservant to, a doulos, bond bondservant. You are a slave, not to yourself, not to your lust, not to your passions, not to your old lifestyle, but now to a new master. Amen? Amen. You're, a, you're now a slave to a new master, and get this, you've always seen it, whether it be on documentaries, whether it be on an Easter special, whatever, you will always see people walking as they're heading to the skull, the place on the hill, Golgotha, as they're heading to that, that place of pain, that place of misery, you always see them carrying their own cross. And you don't just see that with Jesus, you saw that really with anyone. And, and the reason that they would do that is because it was it was Rome's way of suppressing the people. And then it was also a way of putting their tyranny on top of them. And so the reason they're actually going to Golgotha, the reason they're going to the place of the skull is because they have wronged the Roman government. At some point in time, they've either committed what they thought was treason or disrespect. They brought some sort of shame on the people of Rome, and particularly on Caesar and his household. And so what they would do is they would make them carry the cross, and as a symbol of them carrying the cross, they were simply saying to every single one that viewed on, as they walked through the streets, heading to the hill, that Rome rules me. That, that, that because I brought shame to Rome. I'm submitting myself under their authority. They haven't done it before, which is why they're there. But that carrying the cross is a symbol of them carrying the authority of Rome to their own death. An interesting, ironic statement, right? People who commit treason against Caesar and his palace are the ones who actually in their last days of death are having to submit under his authority visually and then die there. Interesting why Jesus says in Matthew 16, deny yourselves, take me the cross and follow me. Though you've committed treason against me, though your lives have been far from me, submit under my leadership, under the yoke of the cross and follow me. And so following Jesus Christ is not some clever prayer that we pray when we're nine. Following Christ is a a point in your life where you realize how far from God you are. You allow him to inventory your life as a result. You trust in him. You put your faith in him. You confess to him. You, You repent. You turn from your ways and you follow him. And you say, I desire that no master in this world would lord himself over me but yet you, Jesus. And so Jesus be Lord. I am a bondservant for you, Christ. And that's what it means to follow. And as you follow Christ, then here's where it gets challenging for all of us. As you follow Christ, you have to begin to live like Christ, right? And isn't that the most challenging thing for most of us in this room? I don't know about you, but the most challenging thing for me is not necessarily understanding, interpreting the Bible. The the most difficult thing for me is James one. It is not literally just being hearers of the word, or or, but to be doers of the word. It's to not simply know what I heard, but to do what I heard. Do what it says. Isn't that the most difficult thing? Like we know the challenge laid out before us, but it's difficult to do what it says, right? It's difficult to treat other people as better than ourselves. It's difficult to have the same attitude as that of Christ. If you're a parent in here, you know what I'm talking about. If you're a boss in here, you know what I'm talking about. But as we follow Christ, then his spirit not only indwells us, but it calls us to love and to live and to serve as he served. And it brings us to something that we oftentimes as people don't do very well. And it's to forgive. It's to forgive people. Matter of fact, Ephesians 4, 32 and 5, verse one says, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God and Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children. And as I think about forgiveness, there's a parable that I absolutely love. I've actually not preached on it uh, here on Sunday morning, uh, but I did in our student ministry when we first, very first started. But in Matthew chapter 18, there's this parable uh, about a a servant who's going to need forgiveness. And if you have your Bibles, I encourage you to turn there. If not, we're going to put it for you up on the screen. But Peter's going to come to Jesus and he's going to ask this question that's been asked among the synagogues for years. He's going to ask a question that many people have a different opinion to. And the question he says as he comes up to Jesus, he says, "Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him?" So the question is is like, "Lord, how often should I bring forgiveness to a person who continually hurts me? How often should I bring forgiveness to someone who doesn't show respect to me. And then he says this, as many as seven times. And what he does is he takes kind of the, the rabbi's view on things and he he practically doubles it. I mean, the common view in the the rabbi world was that you would forgive someone about three times. And that was kind of the custom teaching within the life and the land of, of uh, the Jews, even as they inhibited the, the province and the area uh, that Rome now ruled, that was the common thing that you'll just forgive them two or three times. And so Peter thought, man, I'm being generous. We'll get, we'll forgive him seven times we'll give them more grace because after all, I'm a follower. I'm following you, Jesus. I want you to be Lord. I want to see you work in my life. It'd be good if I did more. And Jesus says to him, I do not say to you seven times, but what? 77 times. And then he gives this awesome parable, which I wish I was half the teacher that Jesus was. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. The idea is a Lord who would go out and he would watch and see his servants work, hopefully diligently because he wanted to settle accounts with them, meaning that things were not all right. And he would go out and settle accounts. And when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, 10,000 talents in our day would equate from anywhere really $12 million to upwards of a billion dollars. Like, it's very difficult for us to put a really solid number on it, but the idea of it is this, a lot of stinking money, right? Right? Matter of fact, I just did a service for someone in our church this week, and in in 1930, um, the Yankees uh, and uh, their GM, Ed Barrow, actually paid Babe Ruth a two-year contract for $160,000. And the GM said, on record, there will never be another Major League Baseball player who's paid as high as Babe Ruth. Did he miss that one or what? (laughs) But if $160,000 was a lot of money in 1930, 10,000 talents far exceeds that in Jesus' day. And the point of this parable, which probably had all the disciples laughing as they sat on their their log stumps going, (laughs) who in the world is going to make 10,000 talents? You know, like Jesus, come on. But the idea was this, this man owed a debt that he could not pay. It didn't matter how many days he worked. It didn't matter. He put in overtime and he paid him time and a half. There was no making this debt up and it didn't matter. He worked all the days of his life. And so he had a debt that he couldn't pay and he had an obligation that it didn't matter. He couldn't meet. Matter of fact, look what happens. As the the master approached him, he says, you owe me 10,000 talents. Look what he said. And since he could not pay, verse 25, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife, his children, all that he had, and a payment to be made. And so the servant falls on his knees, imploring, have patience with me. And look what he says, I will pay you everything. Have patience. Give me a little time. Like, just, can you just put it on a layaway plan? I'm going to pay it off. I'm going to put it on my Visa Express card. I promise I'm going to get it paid off. And there's two things in this statement that if you don't watch very closely for, you'll never understand the point of this text. The very first one is that he couldn't pay. And it didn't matter how how long he worked. And the second one is, is this. He did not need patience from his master. As C.H. Spurgeon said, he didn't need need patience, he needed forgiveness. Why? Because here's the point as this narrative continues. If you can work your entire life for something that you can't pay, what's the point of continuing to work? If you can live your entire life trying to be as good as you think the master wants you to be, but you'll never measure up, what's the point of keeping? on, keeping on. And that's really the point of recovery, my friends. The point of recovery in this text before it continues on is this. If you're spinning your wheels and your life is literally a living nightmare, and you know that there's nothing that you're going to try different because you've tried it all, the question is how long do you keep on trying? How long do you keep asking the question, God, would you, just, would you just be patient with me? God, would you just help me get this and help me get this and help me get this in order? And here's the deal. The, the slave, the servant is asking the wrong question. He's saying, hey, will you give me time and will you be patient with me? Two questions that are the wrong questions. Look what happens in the narrative. But out of pity for him, not because he asked the right questions, but out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him and forgave him the debt. Do you see what he did? He forgave him the debt. Did he ask for forgiveness? No. Which is something we'll come back to. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a 100 denarii, which is pennies on the dollar. Okay? A a, a couple of days wages. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Do you see what he did? He leaves under the pretense of patience and time. And he gets forgiven, although he asked the wrong question. And then he takes the servant that owed him a fraction, pennies on the dollar of what he owed his master. And he begins to choke him out. Sounds like a lot of modern day church people I know. It is indeed the Pharisee. It is indeed the person who ties up a cumbersome load and someone's not willing to carry it himself, and that's the idea here. And then look what happens. When his fellow servants saw that he had taken this had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him in, and he said, "You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you pleaded with me. You got down on your knees. Do you remember that, John?" You got down on your knees. You asked for patience. You asked for a payment plan. You asked for more time. And instead of giving you more time and instead of just being patient for you, I took all the receipts on your docket and I threw them in the trash. And then you're going to go out, you shrewd, wicked man, and you're going to choke someone out for fractions, pennies on the dollar of what has been done to you. Can you imagine the the servant? I mean, what what can you say? I I mean, what what can you do other than want to drop down to your knees and beg again, right? But at that point, he had already proven the condition of his heart. And what was the condition of his heart? That he would choke someone out and then he was mean and angry and bitter? No. The condition of his heart, the condition of his heart, which is the ultimate sin problem for all of us in this room is that we took advantage of the master. See, the problem is not that he went and choked the guy out. It wasn't that he was angry. The problem really was not the fact that he even asked for the money, I guess, in a sense. Because the guy did owe him something. But the problem is, is this, is that he forgot to see what the master had done for him. Which is why Jesus closes this text with these words. And should you not have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had on you, which is what the man said, and in anger his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So he throws him in jail. And then look what Jesus does. So also my heavenly father will do every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. You understand? What's he saying? He says this. The reason that you and I don't go and put a chokehold on someone else who's grieved us, who's sinned against us, no matter how bad it is, the reason that we don't just say, hey, I'm gonna just strangle them is because when we can't forgive, it reveals to us that we did not understand God's forgiveness towards us in the first place. And then that brings up a lot of good questions, right? Because you're like, well, okay, so I should just forgive. I, I should just naturally forgive. Like if if I go through all these steps, I get to the point where I follow God, then I just got to forgive everything. And that just means that I just keep on going. And when somebody does something wrong, I just pay no attention to it and I move on. Well, no, let me show you real quickly what forgiveness is not. Because that's the question that all of us have. Like, okay, so is it forgiveness if I go and 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 Talk to the person, or do I even have to go to the, the person? Well, let's talk about it just real quick. Forgiveness is not letting the offender off the hook. Understand? Forgiveness does not mean that there aren't some consequences to pay. Now, in this particular case, the master, he he was going to let the guy off the hook, yes? But in some cases, the offender does not get off the hook. In some cases, there are civil punishments. Sometimes there are relationships that are broken, and sometimes those things are not always restored. You can't always let people off the hook. Forgiving is not forgetting. You're not God. God takes our sins and throws them as far as the east of the west, and that's going to be an incredible thing to think about. You and I cannot always forget everything, but I can tell you what forgiveness is not as well. Forgiveness isn't forgetting, but it's also not storing it back here in the Rolodex where I'll bring it out in my convenience. Women, you're really good at that, right? So are you guys. All of us have a nice drawer back here in the back, don't we? And we bring it out when we need it, when necessary. And what's incredible is how many drawers are often in our memory cabinet, And so while it's not forgetting, it's not manipulating and using it against other people. Forgiveness is not condoning. Forgiveness is not condoning. What does that mean? Well, you don't offer forgiveness if someone made a right decision. You offer forgiveness when they made a what? Wrong decision. And so if they make a wrong decision, so it means there, there may be consequences to pay. It doesn't mean that you condone it. It doesn't mean that you just turn your eyes to it and go, you know what? It's no big deal. Because there are many of us in this room who we have sinned against another brother or a sister, and it's a big deal. There are many in this room that part of your recovery process, part of the revitalization that needs to take place in your life is because there was someone who did something horrific to you, and they've never faced punishment, and they should have. It never came out into the light, and it was very dark. And the bottom line is this, is that you feel like if I forgive them, then I'm condoning their behavior, and forgiveness is not condoning their behavior. It's not saying that their wrong is right, because it's not. Sin is sin, and so we have to call it what it is, knowing that there are some consequences, and sometimes as the recipient of sin, we face the, 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 the insurmountable sometimes consequence, it feels like forgiveness is not reconciliation. Now that sounds a little bit difficult. Like what? It's not reconciliation. How is forgiveness not reconciliation? Well, reconciliation takes two parties. Reconciliation means that the person who has grieved you also accepts and you you restore. Can reconciliation take place? Yes. Does it always have to take place? No. Matter of fact, one of the greatest arguments that we may have, particularly if it's something in the past, is how do I deal with something or someone if they're not even here? And so you need to know that like that shouldn't be a stumbling block for you. You should be able to move on knowing that you may not get reconciliation. You may not get total reuniting in this picture, but you can still forgive knowing that forgiveness takes place with one party. So forgiveness is not reconciliation. Forgiveness is not an emotional decision. Forgiveness is not a feeling, because if it's a feeling, we would all go, heck no. Heck no. Right? And matter of fact, like, it takes some time for this idea of forgiveness to manifest itself in our life, because if it didn't take time, then our natural feeling would be like, I am not dealing with any of this. And then we naturally think all the things that come to our mind, right, which we can't even talk about necessarily in this particular place and time, right? Because all the, the things that run through our minds, we think, oh, man, that's sorry Jerk, you know, she's, and you just, it just goes on and on. You fill in your own blanks because you don't want to know mine, okay? That's the wicked servant uh, here as your pastor, right? I'm like, it's me. I'm in this text. And so it means that I have to allow the Spirit of God to manifest himself in my life over and over again to bring me to a place where I'm not simply making an emotional decision, but I actually offer something that God has offered me, and that's true forgiveness. And so what is true forgiveness? This is the best definition I came up with, and I'm sure you probably have one better. And if so, you take whatever part of this you want and you make it your own, as long as you understand the point of it. Forgiveness is a conscious decision to redeem something wrong by deciding to offer mercy with our heart, with our mind, with our soul, with our strength, because we exemplify what the master has done for us. Now think about that and and read that. I had to double check this with my wife several times this week. Okay, does this make sense? Does this add up? She's like, it's pretty long. I'm like, I need it to be long. I needed to sink in. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's not a condoning what happened. It's not just turning your eyes to it. Forgiveness is a point in time in your life where you sit down and you contemplate and you ask the spirit to do everything in your life to allow him to help you do an inventory. You confess where you need to confess. You repent where you need to, to repent. You follow him trusting that he's not going to lead you into a cliff, but he's going to leave you into what? still waters, that he's going to lead you into a place where there's greener pastures to come. You know that though you're walking through the valley of the shadow of death, you're going to fear no evil for that. His rod, his staff, he brings you comfort. And so you know, God, I'm going to trust you in this. And then you make a conscious decision. I'm going to forgive. It's time for me to move on. Why? Because if you don't, you'll stay in a place of darkness. In isolation, you'll reject community. You'll reject transparency and you'll look like you're okay. And you'll, you'll be a resemblance of Mark Bachtel, a guy that initially you look at and you go, there's nothing wrong with him. But the more you spend with him, you realize there's many things that are there, underlying conditions. And so that's why we make a conscious decision to redeem something wrong. It's making something wrong right. That's forgiveness. It's taking a wrong and forgiving it. It's making it right, and you decide to offer mercy with your heart, your 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 soul, your mind, your strength, because we exemplify what God has done for us. And so, let me just put it plainly for all of us: East Texans in this room, forgiven people, forgive. Forgiven people, forgive. And it brings you to this idea of amends. And amends is simply this, Romans 12, 17, 18. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceable with all men. It doesn't say live peaceable with just a handful of people that you get along with. It says it's so far as it is possible, live at peace with all men. It means reconcile what's been made wrong. Knowing what forgiveness is knowing that there are some hard conversations to have, and in some cases you can't have. And, but if you can't have them, it doesn't mean that you have to be chained there. Why? Because the spirit can bring freedom. And my prayer is, is that in our recovery process, we know and understand that God is a gracious master. But listen, he brings forgiveness to those who ask for it. You know what forgiveness is not? You know what amends is not? Let me kind of close with you. Amends is not, I'm sorry that you took what I said wrong. I hear that all the time. I'm sorry that you took what I said wrong. I'm sorry that what I did offended you. Let me ask you a question. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. I'm going to close with this question. Is the cross sufficient for everyone who has ever sinned? Yes. Because it's sufficient for everyone that has ever sinned. Will everyone experience a new life in Jesus Christ? No. Why not? Because it's only the one who asks for forgiveness that amends are made Right? And so, one of the greatest things that we need to work on as Christians is not simply saying, "Hey, I'm sorry, I I, I I said that," or "Hey, I'm sorry, I'm sorry." You know what my kids say every time they do something wrong? "I'm sorry." Hey, Caleb, come here. I'm sorry, <laughs> Brady. I'm sorry, Dad. Blakely. <laughs> I said I'm sorry. I said, "Say I'm sorry." I'm sorry. (laughs) And then what do they do? Ten minutes later, the same thing, right? I'm sorry. I'm sorry means, will you forgive me? And I'm not going to do that to you again. Understand? Now, we are fallible people. We're broken. And broken people hurt people, hurt people, right? But as we forgive it should cause us to make amends. And making amends is living at peace as best we can with all men. And so may God just do work in our lives because we live in a community. We live in a county that is fraction. Uh, There are many things that, there are splinters in your life as a result of people that you went to school with or people that you went to church with or there's people that are in your family or in your family now and you haven't spoken to in years. And so may God use this idea of recovery May He help us relate to the idea of regeneration so it moves us forward in our faith this year. May 2016 be a year of, of hopefully reconciliation, but for nothing else, forgiveness. Setting some people free because our master, Jesus Christ, is good. Let me pray for you, church. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for the grace that you've bestowed upon us. And I pray, Lord, that you would move in a mighty, mighty way that you would set some people free, that you would help us to understand forgiveness, bring us out of bondage, bring us out of areas that for so long have held us chained down. Set us free, God, from areas that are not like you. Help us, God, to bring forgiveness to other people, to live at peace with other people as best we can by making amends with them. Lord, we love you. We thank you for the challenge of your word. We thank you for the revelation that you show us in your scripture. In Jesus' name, amen.